Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 367, Smith and Barlow versus Nissan and Essary Debate, Is Jesus Yahweh? Part 2. In this episode of the Trinity's podcast, you'll hear the second and longer half of this excellent Trinitarian-Unitarian debate. Let's get right into it, where the pro side cross-examines the con side. So the main speakers as we start are Samuel Nissan, arguing that Jesus is Yahweh, and Dr. Dustin Smith, arguing that Jesus isn't Yahweh. First of all, thank you. I want to thank both of you, Dustin and uh, William, really for that uh, enlightening debate. I'm really enjoying this debate, and I really appreciate the, the high standard that you guys have set. So let's begin with the first question. Hypothetically, the New Testament is intending to teach that Jesus is Yahweh. How would it have made it any clearer, apart other than what it already has, given that you know you have to use the Greek kyrios, you can't use the... Hebrew equivalent of Yahweh, how would it make it any clearer? I think it would have to remove all references to Jesus as the Son, because in the Hebrew Bible, Yahweh is the Father alone. And so to suggest that Jesus is Yahweh is really not just suggesting, you're deliberately stating that Jesus is the Father. And he's not the Father, he's the Son. And that, of course, makes a distinction between the two of them. And uh, since Yahweh in the Hebrew Bible is a single person, and not a plurality of persons or three persons, we can see that the distinction that's commonly made between Yahweh and the Messiah would, I think, make it very, very difficult for that sort of equation to take place. Yeah, so I guess that the assumption, thanks, Dustin, I assume the assumption then is that uh, Jesus is not obviously the eternal son. Sonship means he was created at some point of time, right? I do think that the uh, Bible says that Jesus brought into existence, and I do think that all sons are younger than their fathers, I think, by definition. I would disagree and, of course, point to Micah 5, verse 2, which speaks of an eternal procession. But uh, instead of that, let me first, before getting to that, I would, I would like to get to Philippians chapter 2, first, since that's something that you dealt with. Uh, in Philippians chapter 2, you mentioned, uh, Dustin, that since God exalts Jesus, you mentioned two points, actually. Number one is that God and Jesus are distinct. I'll, I'll come back to that as well. But that God exalts Jesus, therefore, this is something that God shares. My question is, does the exaltation of Jesus take place prior to his kenosis or after the kenosis, where he empties himself voluntarily? I think that the exaltation uh, occurs after the resurrection. I, th I think the resurrection is implied. We don't have to say that God raised him from the dead. I think that's implied there, but clearly Jesus mm -hmm. was raised from the dead by God and uh, God highly exalted him. There seems to be uh, an order that goes from uh, verse six, even though verse six continues a sentence that begins in verse five in Greek, and it just continues to work down through. And uh, of course the exaltation in nine, 10 and 11 happens uh, after Jesus died. Thanks for that. Now, if I understand you correctly, you don't disagree that the kenosis took place or the emptying of Jesus himself took place prior to the exaltation, and that's the order of Philippians 2. Then in that case, when do you think that Jesus humbled himself, did not cling on to equality with God? When does that take place? Is it before the incarnation? I mean, before he was born? Or was that after Jesus was born based on Philippians 2? 
Yeah, I think based on Philippians 2, since the subject of the entire hymn, according to verse 5, is Christ Jesus, that of course is King Jesus, that is his anointed title and his given human name. So we're not talking about a pre-existent son of God. We're not talking about some sort of pre-existent word. We're talking about the human historical Jesus. So when I look at his ministry, I see many times where Jesus decides to not exercise his prerogatives. He doesn't want to turn stones into bread. He doesn't want to call legions of angels down to protect him. He doesn't claim to be the one who's worthy to be served. In fact, he actually is the one who decides that he's going to empty himself and serve other people. So I think that the kenosis uh, is actually something that Jesus does in his ministry as a human being. But it says here, by taking on human likeness, right? So being born. So the it, it seems that the action of Jesus humbling himself, according to Philippians 2, takes place before he was born in the likeness of men. So why would I be wrong for assuming that, contrary to what you just said, this actually teaches both pre-existence and that Jesus in the pre-existent state is explicitly stated here, equal with God? Well, I don't think it's explicit. I think that uh, humanity in Paul's anthropology is not something that's neutral. Humanity is something that is sinful and in need of redemption. And since what Jesus does is that he starts with the morphetheu, and he doesn't take on the form of human, he actually takes on the form of the servant. And I actually think there's a very specific servant that he takes on. I think he takes on the role of the suffering servant from Isaiah 52 through 53. And so this is someone that has the functional equality with God that the Jewish king understandably had based on a variety of passages from the Hebrew Bible in the Psalms. And this is someone who doesn't, instead, I do think that harpagmos means something that he possessed, but he didn't exploit rather than something that he didn't have and that he tried to grasp at. I think that instead of exploiting that role of being Messiah and the functional equality, he emptied himself not by taking something on and grabbing humanity. That's not what the definition of emptying means, okay? He emptied himself of those privileges and responsibilities as Messiah, and he took on the role and the attitude of the suffering servant. And he continued to live his life as a servant who humbled himself, who served other people. And that, of course, makes Philippians 2 the example for readers, which is actually what Paul tells us to do, which is to take that passage and make it as an example for us to follow. If Jesus really God who decides to become a man, that is an impossible example for anyone to follow. So that's my reading of the passage. Right. I was going to actually discuss about how the morphe is parallel to taking being born in the likeness of men. But due to time, I'm just going to go to uh, my the other passage that I brought up, which is First Peter chapter three, was fourteen to fifteen. Uh, and as I pointed out, Dustin, uh, or, or will this is a passage where Peter is actually quoting from Isaiah chapter eight, twelve to thirteen, which says, "Do not fear." and don't be afraid, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Peter just takes that same passage and substitutes it with Christ the Lord. How is this not a clear passage demonstrating Peter's understanding that Jesus is indeed the Lord of hosts, Yahweh? Because we've already demonstrated in our opening statement that the New Testament use of the Old Testament is not a one-to-one -one equivalent. We know from Matthew 2, when it quotes from Hosea 11 verse 1, that the nation of Israel is quoted to refer to Jesus. That's obviously not a one-to-one -one equivalent. We know that Jesus in Matthew 13 is quoted and using a passage uh, from the Psalms using Asaph. Jesus clearly not Asaph. And of course, the Emmanuel passage from Matthew 1.23 is referring to someone in the 8th century prophet Isaiah's time. So the New Testament use of the Old Testament is very flexible. 
And I think a much better reading is that in the context of First Peter, which is writing to an audience spanning the size of Montana that clearly are dealing with how to function as Christians in the midst of the Greco-Roman world and emperor worship by saying that they need to sanctify Christ as Kyrios in their heart, that they are actually making Jesus the Lord, not Caesar. So that is actually a title, not the actual name for God. So there's a much looser use of the uh, use of scripture there. And I think, again, that uh, the context would suggest that it's meant to be a reference of Jesus being Lord, not Caesar. Briefly, Dustin, for a non-American audience, could you clarify how big Montana is? That's a U.S. Uh, Montana is, 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 is absolutely massive. I mean, when, when you read First uh, Peter, I think it's the first two verses, he lists all of these different, uh, you have to like look in the back of your Bible to see the size of the map. Montana is, is, is massive and huge, okay? I think I got that reference from the Hermia right. commentary, so I didn't make that up. Maybe make this my last question there. You said this, it's, it's not a one-to-one reference. Is there anything in this particular text that would suggest it's not a one-to-one reference? Because I, I think that it clearly is, except that he's looking at it as Lord of hosts, Jesus as Lord of hosts. Is there anything in this text that is in First Peter 3 that would suggest it's not a one-for-one? I think the entire context of First Peter, which regularly distinguishes Jesus from God, Jesus, of course, is never called Yahweh explicitly there. And we also see that Jesus is the person who has died, something that Yahweh cannot do. I think that's absolutely clear. So I think all the other references would naturally read people to make uh, what I think is a pretty self-evident claim. When the Trinity's podcast returns, the negative side cross-examines the positive side. Well, again, thank you both so much for what has taken place so far. I think the engagement on both sides has been fantastic, and we we definitely respect both of you and your viewpoint and uh, looking forward to very enlightening further cross-examination period. And again, the point of this cross-examination period for some of the audience that may not be aware or have watched debates before is we're here to test ideas. We're here to poke and prod at ideas. I'm not poking Samuel. I'm not poking Kyle. Uh, you know, we you know, definitely respect y'all. So um, we're just trying to, to, to point out the distinctions between our view and your view, and I know you're doing the same. So um, really enjoying this so far. I want to get to something that came up during the rebuttal and also in our opening speech, and that is the title of Yahweh. Our stance has been that Yahweh is the Father alone in the, in the Hebrew Bible, and that that is illustrated over 20,000 times. So I guess my question in light of all of this is, you agree with us that there's 20,000 singular references to Yahweh, right? You're not contesting that in this debate, correct? Samuel, I think I've watched some debates of yours before. You have at times said that Yahweh can use, we can use singular uh, references because it's the Father speaking. Is that how you understand it, that it's the Father speaking? Yes, I, I think that, yeah, I mean, but we speak of Yahweh today. We use the singular pronoun as well. We say God, he, uh, even though we, we right. believe that Yahweh is more than one person. So, yes, uh, I think if the father is speaking, he can say I. And when the father speaks, he can say there is no God besides me. That fits within the entire Trinitarian framework that I hold to. Yes. 
Yeah, so you have the Father speaking for the three persons of the Trinity. So then, I guess uh, when I we could, get to a passage... Can I clarify that? Yes, please. Sorry. Thanks so much. Real quick, just to clarify that. I, I think that in the operation of the Trinity, they work as one. So in a sense, there's, there, mm-hmm. if anything that God does, whether it's the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit, God is involved in it. So I think the same would be applied to blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. In fact, Kyle and I had this conversation at the end of last year where we talked about how the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is actually the blasphemy of God itself. Uh, so I, I think that you can't distinguish or create a dichotomy between that in that sense. Uh, when every member of the Trinity speaks, it's speaking for Yahweh, I think that in that sense, it's representational of all three persons. Yes. We hold to the inseparable operations of the Trinity. Yes. So when we think about the Old Testament, especially how it gets applied in the New Testament, we think about passages like Exodus 3, 6. Um, I'll read that for you. It says, and, and he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Who is this God? Would you agree that this is Yahweh talking about Yahweh? Yes. Yeah, of course. That's Yahweh. Yeah. Yeah, so then when we get to Acts 3.13, it says, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his child Jesus. That's Acts 3.13. How would that fit your view of this? There's one God. There's, there's no other God apart from uh, Jesus. Is not a distinct God. Uh, it's the same way we would address passages like John 17.3. The Father is the only true God. Jesus is not going to say the Father is one of many gods. He is a monotheist. And so, yes, uh, in that sense, that's how we would approach it. I'm not sure if Carl wants to add on to that. I absolutely agree. It's not surprising that the Father would recognize or highlight or exalt the Son. It's not surprising that the Bible could even speak of God as God in his being, you know, exalting or highlighting one of the hypostases, one of the persons of God. So, yeah. Okay. So maybe if you could clarify. It would be more clear. Yeah, no, I, I, I think in Acts 3, what we look at is we see God of Abraham, Isaac, of J- and Jacob, and then Peter defines that to be the God of our fathers. And then he separates that from glorifying his holy child, Jesus. And it seems like he's referring to Exodus 3 when he does that. That's all we're trying to point out is that Peter defines God, who is Yahweh in Exodus 3, 6, as the father. And then the, then his son, Jesus, is a separate person in our in our view, a separate being we would add to that. I think you would say separate person, but not separate being. Is that what I'm understanding? That's absolutely correct. I think what you say um, is a good example uh, for what I mentioned in the rebuttal, that we bring these certain presuppositions to the text. And so whenever I look at this as a Trinitarian, I don't see anything that disagrees with Trinitarian theology. And I think whenever you look at it as a biblical Unitarian, you don't see anything that's different from uh, your Unitarian theology in this passage. And so I think once again, we have to get to the overall framework, which is most consistent, which I think both of us have been trying to present. Totally. So I guess, you know, we've been talking about what kind of evidence would we need to be convinced? One of those questions that I would ask in light of that is, can you find a scripture reference anywhere that describes Yahweh as three or as triune? How do you want to respond to that, Samuel? Yeah, I mean, no, I, mean so yes. I would point... I would point to the various passages that we mentioned in our opening statement where we say that the Bible teaches that Jesus is Yahweh. We could also look at passages that do a similar thing with the Spirit of God. Or we could look at Old Testament passages that appear to us as Trinitarians as a hypostasis of God in an incarnate type form. And so, I mean, I think that for us, it's just look at the scriptures as a whole. 
and you see that God reveals himself in three different hypostases. I keep using that term, as you know, throughout the history of the church, it's a very confusing term because the Greek word hypostases, or you're talking about prosopon and these other words, they're not a one-to-one with English person, like we might say. The reason I asked whether Carol could go first is because I, I had a little bit of a longer answer to that. Do, do you mind if I expound on your that question further? Is that okay? Sure. Yeah, so if you go to Genesis chapter 18, it says that Yahweh appeared, was one, to him, that is Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre. And in that conversation, you will see a distinction of, uh, uh, you know, the pronouns being used here. So you, you would see, for example, Yahweh said, so Yahweh appears as a person and is speaking face to face with Abraham here saying, uh, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him for I have chosen him. So this is Yahweh who appeared saying, I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of Yahweh. Now, Yahweh is referred to in the third person. So that Yahweh, the Lord, may bring to Abraham what he, third person singular pronoun, has promised him. Uh, And now he goes on to say, verse 21, that he's going to go down to Sodom and do that. And I just quickly, due to time, point to, we go to chapter 19, in the destruction of Sodom, we see the two angels going down to Sodom, and then they come back, uh, bringing Lot and his family out, uh, minus Lot's wife, of course. And then in the destruction of Sodom, it says here, verse 24, Genesis 19, 24, then Yahweh rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from Yahweh out of heaven. So already you have two times the word Yahweh is mentioned here, where the original context is, there's Yahweh on heaven, who is referenced to in the third person, and then there's Yahweh on earth. And Yahweh on earth mm-hmm. rains down fire from Yahweh sure. in heaven. So I, I would say that this is a clear demonstration within the first book of scripture that there's multi-personal, uh, there's more than one person in Yahweh. Sorry for the long answer. Sure. No, it's okay. One of the qualities of Yahweh, the God of Israel, is that he is omniscient or all-knowing. But would you say that Jesus is omniscient? Yes. So then how do you understand Mark 13, 32, where he says concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven or the son, but only the father knows. In fact, the spirit's not mentioned there as knowing either. And he's not limited by yes. human nature. I'll add to that. How do you understand Mark 13, 32? Yeah, I understand that. And again, I've responded to this in my previous debates, as you know, uh, by simply pointing to the communicatio idomatum, that is the communication of the attribute saying that in his human nature, all the properties of the human nature are communicated to the person of Christ. And that in light of Philippians 2, Christ has willingly, voluntarily chose to humble himself through the kenosis, being born in the likeness of men, taking on a human nature. And so as a result of that, he submits his knowledge to the will of the Father. That's not to say he has no access to that knowledge, but it's a willing submission to the knowledge of the Father. That's how I would understand that message. When the Trinity's podcast returns a second cross-examination of the negative side by the positive side.
did you actually have Papa John's for dinner or was it just a prop? Oh, I ordered it specifically for today. And if you come over, you can have a slice. I got one right here with your name. Oh, right. oh you're <laughs> tempting me. So there used to, I have to take a bit of time here. There used to be Papa John's in Malaysia. And in the city where we used to live, my family frequented there like once a week. And I'm not kidding. Whenever we moved from that city, the Papa John shut down within a couple of months. So I think we were the ones keeping it in business. I love Papa John's. So uh, Dustin, I want to ask you a couple of questions uh, really briefly. So obviously I brought up Daniel 7. And um, you might have noticed throughout the argument, I did not focus on proscuneo. Uh, I did not focus on the Hishtavel of Chava, uh, but instead I looked at Palach in the Aramaic. And the mm -hmm. reason that I did this is because this is a word that is only used of religious devotion of a deity. But I noticed in your response, you only focused on proskuneo, which is fine. That's the typical way that this argument goes. But how would you respond to Palach? What we see in Daniel is clearly that the worship that is due to the Ancient of Days, which I'm sure you'll be able to verify in Aramaic, is the Ancient One of Days. That's one person, not three persons. He actually shares that with this Son of Man figure. So we have this Son of Man figure who is able to receive worship that is primarily due to the one true God. But we also see that as the passage goes on, that figure, the Son of Man, is a representative figure for other suffering human beings. So whatever you want to say about the worship that's given to the Son of Man, it's also given to other people that are unambiguously human, someone who is not the Ancient of Days. So I don't think it's actually correct to say that the verb in Aramaic only refers to the worship of God. Uh, since we only have 10 references for it, that's not a big sample size, but I think clearly Daniel 7 has a little bit more to say about the figure and what is actually given to this Son of Man figure. Yeah, it's actually um, a small reference size in the Aramaic portions of the Old Testament. But as you know, in the Aramaic Targumim, as well as in the Old Greek translation, it uses Palak a number of times, only in reference to the worship of Yahweh or a temple service of a false god, um, as well as the Old Greek translation, Latruo or Latrevo, depending on our uh, pronunciation of yeah. Greek, is also the same type of dedication to a deity type worship or service. And that's why Jesus says in Luke 4, 8, serve God alone, right? So would you say Correct. that the Son of Man then is on the side of the Creator, or is he a creature? Uh, I think that uh, Son of Man means uh, a human one, which by definition is someone who is actually created. And again, since Daniel 7 continues to unpack the definition of this representative Son of Man figure as referring to the Jewish holy ones, uh, the Jewish holy people, the saints of the Most High, we get further indication that uh, human beings are clearly being involved there. I, don't, I haven't quite heard if you don't agree with that evidence or not. But one of the things that I had brought up earlier is that God and human beings can be the object of worship in a way that doesn't threaten monotheism. So, and I don't think in the New Testament, uh, Jesus is ever unambiguously the object of the verb latrevo. I do think that is reserved for the Father alone. 
Can I add a little bit there, Dustin? I think as a biblical Unitarian, we would read a verse like Matthew 4.10 as, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall latruo. I do latruo, he does latrevo, I think. Dustin and I disagree on the, the pronunciation there. But the point is, is that proskuneo, as we pointed out in our speech, applies to many, many people in the Bible. But latruo only goes to the one true God. And again, in the New Testament, like Dustin just said, latruo only applies to the to the Father. It's never uh, given to the Son. And, and worship, I'll add, proskuneo, latruo, latrevo, whatever, sabeomai, all the other all the other forms of worship, none of them are given to the Holy Spirit. I'll uh, I'll just add that piece as well. Yeah, thanks, Will. Thanks, Dustin. So you would say then that whenever the old Greek translators used latrevo for palat, that they were incorrect in their translation? Because they say that you'd latrevo the son of man. I think they do say that. Now, there are there are a couple of mistranslations in the Greek coming from the Aramaic. Uh, I do think in the Greek it does say that the Son of Man comes as the Ancient of Days, which the Aramaic unambiguously does not say. So there, there are a couple of places to where that's right, not right, true. Right, right. But again, we th- the point is that there are things that are appropriate for the one true God, but it seems in Daniel 7.14 that he shares those things with the Son of Man. It's the Ancient of Days and his dominion, his glory, and his kingship that are now given to human beings. Uh, So there's a distinction there, but they have it not because they are God. They have it because God has empowered and authorized them with it. So whenever it speaks of the Son of Man here, does it use singular pronouns and verbs, or does it use plural pronouns and verbs? I think in verses 13 through 14, the initial vision of the dream, we have a singular figure, but as the angel comes and interprets the apocalyptic vision uh, as uh, Daniel requests for it to take place, I think in verses uh, 15 and 16, uh, you can see that as things get unpacked, the son of man figure, a singular figure, gets unpacked as a plural group of holy ones, of saints. Jesus uh, sees himself as the representative son of man in the gospels as a person who dies on behalf of people. I think it's, it's part of his right. atonement theory. And um, that's a good point. So I agree, obviously it uses singular reference. And as we know, singular reference is referring to one being and not to, you know, a multitude of people. But as that is brought up later on in the interpretation, it does mention that there is some type of unity between this people and this representative, this son of man. But I would even point out there that the, the distinction is made that through this one son of man, the people receive the kingdom, the holy ones, however you want to interpret that term in verse 27. But even then, mm-hmm. it still specifies his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will halak him. So here, right. it's once again, it's the halak, the service or the worship of the one individual. Is that incorrect? No, I, I think that that is a reference to God in verse 27, because uh, there's, there's no question that God obviously is going to be worshipped uh, at the uh, fulfillment of Daniel 7, 27. That much is clear. We probably wouldn't want to spend all the time like dissecting uh, all of Daniel chapter 7 uh, during this time here, so it, it cut me off whenever you feel appropriate. But we have these four beasts that come against the people of God, and the people of God are represented by a human figure. That's not surprising because Daniel chapter 6 has these ferocious beasts, these lions that are attacking uh, Daniel, 
And of course, uh, God vindicates this suffering human one uh, from the beast. And what we see in Daniel 7, we see the same thing. We see the Ancient of Days vindicating the suffering people represented by a single figure from these terrible beasts. Again, there's a lot more we could say on that there. But uh, the point is, I, I'm not denying that the Son of Man is worshipped. What I'm trying to say is that Daniel 7.14 explicitly indicates that he has so because the Ancient of Days has shared his dominion, his glory, and his kingship with this person, indicating that he is a highly authorized and empowered agent and arguably a representative person for the suffering people of God. Hey, Dustin, I love this because I'm confident that you and I, if we just had a full day together, we could just keep going back and forth on Daniel 7 because it's such an awesome passage. Uh, I think we're all in agreement there. Hey, one last thing. Uh, you brought up, Will, in your opening that wonderful Exodus 23, 20 passage where it speaks of the angel of the Lord leading the people out of Egypt. And of course, we know that hundreds of times it refers to Yahweh as the God who brought you out of Egypt. And then in Jude 5, which Sam mentioned, where it says that Jesus led you out of Egypt only to later destroy you. Uh, how would you understand that? I want to make it clear to the audience that uh, Jude 5 is one of those textually uncertain passages. It doesn't absolutely certainly uh, say that it's actually Jesus who rescued them. In fact, all the other references to Jesus in the book of Jude refer to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's very curious that the reference in verse 5 only says Jesus. And uh, there are quite a few scholars that suggest that this has been uh, theologically changed in the manuscripts to suggest that. So I don't think it's a very clear passage to, I think, make that particular point. Maybe if you had another passage that explicitly it, it, it was indicated... theologically changed in the later manuscripts, right. correct? All right, um, that's, that's time right there. When the Trinity's podcast returns, a second cross-examination of the positive side by the negative side. I'm going to start with, uh, does Jesus have a God? Yes. Yes. So who is Jesus's God, according to the New Testament? Again, according to the New Testament, the Father calls Jesus God. Jesus calls the Father God. Yes, uh, there is only one God. But each member of the Trinity so, is God. That's central to the Trinity. Yeah. Sure. So when Jesus quotes Psalm 22 on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Who is that God that he's referring to on the cross? Uh, I, I mean, obviously, we believe that there is one God, right? So Jesus in his humanity on the cross, whenever he quotes Psalm 22, just like the psalmist, and says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken, abandoned me? Or it is God the Son, who is not forsaken from the Father, who is not cut off from the Father, but it is Jesus, who we hold is fully God and fully man. It is the humanity of Jesus who is in this excruciating situation, literally excruciating at the cross, right? Uh, who, yeah. who says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
So following up on that, you would say then his divine nature is part of that God that he's talking to then in that? So then no, is he talking to the father or? So I, I, I have to uh, strongly disagree with the term part of uh, that because that would lead to partialism, which is, an, which is an, a heresy that Jesus is one third God. No, we believe Jesus is truly God. There is only one being in, in that sense. No, Jesus is not the father in personhood, but he is the same substance with the father. So. Sure. But he's speaking to someone who's not himself, right? He's saying, my God, my God, yes. why have you forsaken me? You're agreeing that it's not himself. Yeah. Yes. So is, is it the father then that he's talking to? Or the father and the yeah, spirit? Because... Or... Things can communicate with one another. Jesus prays to the father. He, you know, is sent by the father. Yeah, we're, we're in agreement with all that. Okay. Does the Bible ever suggest that the father has a God? Yes. You would take yeah, Hebrews 1, 8 to mean that, Samuel? Absolutely. Okay. All right, I'm going to quote another Old Testament passage here, Deuteronomy 4, 35. To you it was shown that you might know that Yahweh, he is God, there's no other besides him. Who is Yahweh in this passage? The one true God. So the Trinity, in other words. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So... How is it possible for us to understand that this is the Trinity when God is being defined with singular references and not plural references? You asked the question earlier, how the New Testament could possibly be written any other way in order to prove that Jesus is Yahweh than it is. I'm asking you the same question about the Old Testament. If you want us to believe in a triune God, how is that possible with all these singular references? Right, because we don't believe that God is three in being. We don't believe that there are three gods. We believe that God is one in his being. And so it makes sense that Hebrew, Greek, and any other language would refer to him as a singular being, which is what we do all the time now. I mean, I pray to the one God. We worship God. God reveals himself in Scripture. And in each of those situations, we're using God as a singular, but in our understanding, we mean that God is tri-personal. He is Trinitarian. So, yeah. I, I, did, I just kind of wanted to clarify there that when it says, he is God, there is no other besides him, the he and the him, you are saying that these singular pronouns refer to three persons and one God. Just, just and, and, I mean, that's what, your position. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. We can move on. If I could just add on to the point uh, that Carl mentioned earlier, is that okay, Will? Sure. Go ahead. Yeah, we're good. We're yeah. Good. All right. Yeah. So yeah. So what what I, what I wanted to mention earlier on is that uh, we we have to read scripture in context, and so when you start mm -hmm. off with the scriptures, in the Genesis one, the Bible says Genesis one one, the Bible says God created the heavens and the earth, and immediately you see there's a spirit involved. There's the word of God involved for God said. John 1.1 1, 1 adds commentary. I know you don't read it that way, but I take it that John 1.1 1, 1 gives commentary into that and in saying that Jesus is the word who creates all these things. Um, and light is again referenced in John 1.3. So we're simply allowing scripture to interpret scripture. And so we see the very first three verses of the Bible already establish the triune God. And so everything else in scripture, we, we read it in that same light. And maybe that's that's why when you see it, we I, and I also want to say this for our audience, the question that is being asked is a really good one. 
if there's singular pronouns being used, how can you take a singular pronoun and apply it to three persons? Uh, and that's really a good question. But our response is that we are simply allowing scripture to interpret itself in that situation, realizing that God is one being in three persons right from the get-go. All right. So pivoting a little bit to Jesus again, Jesus, as the son of God, is he the biological son of Yahweh? We're not Mormons, no. <laughs> so then why is it, why is it, yeah, why, so why Matthew, go ahead, sorry. Why is it the Matthew chapter one uses the verb ganao over 40 times to describe fathers begetting sons, biological sons, Abraham begat Isaac, Isaac begat Jacob, and so on. And then a few verses later, Matthew uses the same verb to describe the begetting of Jesus in the womb of Mary in Matthew one twenty. For the same reason, I would say, uh, Will, that every time the Bible uses the word sonship other than God, it always re it refers to physical begetting or physical sonship. But when God says that Israel is my firstborn, that's the exception. Uh, so we, we read that same, that it's the same principle in the Old Testament we are applying to the New uh, in that sense. Yeah. I'm not sure if Carl wants to add on to that. No, I agree. I want to talk about Deuteronomy 18 a little bit. We talked about Deuteronomy 18 in our opening statement. In verse 15, Moses is speaking to the people of Israel. Is there anything in this context that would make the initial audience believe that the prophet to come would be any more than an Israelite human prophet? We fully agree that Jesus was fully human, fully God, fully man. That's not an issue at all. So for Jesus to be the fulfillment of the prophet mentioned here and again in Deuteronomy 34, you know, that prophet has not arisen passage. That's not an issue. Yeah, Jesus was a fully Israelite, fully human prophet. We read this passage as you have Yahweh and you have the prophet like Moses from among the brethren. I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but you're saying that these two figures are actually both Yahweh then. Is that correct? Is that a fair yes. representation? Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk about Psalm 2 then. In verse 2, do you agree that there are two figures, Yahweh and his anointed? There are two figures in view yes. there. And so Yahweh in that passage is Yahweh the Father. Yes. Yes, that's correct. Okay. If Yahweh is the Father, can he also be the Son? Now in this context, not in another context, but in this context, can he also be the Son? No, Yahweh the Father cannot be the Son. Okay. The Father is not the Son. Do you agree that Yahweh is greater than the anointed son in this context or no? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Uh, and, and let me clarify okay. what I mean by that in the sense that the son, again, we, we, I'm reading this in light of Philippians 2, that the son, though equal with the father, has willingly submitted himself, taking on human nature uh, and being born in the likeness of men. The kenosis has taken place. And in that sense, Jesus is functionally subordinate to the father. In that sense, the Psalm 2 passage is about dealing with the exaltation of Christ post-resurrection. Uh, and so mm -hmm. uh, I'm, I'm saying that in that sense, yes, the father is functionally greater than Christ. Yes. Okay. Thank you. When the Trinity's podcast returns, short closing statements from each side in this debate.
shall get a few words in and then I'll pass the time to Carl uh, to, to close up. Yeah, I just wanted to, first of all, just thank both Dustin and uh, Will for that really, really, really good cross-examination and debate in, in, in total. It, it's very rare that I enjoy the cross-examination because typically cross-examinations tend to be very stressful. But this is one that I almost didn't want it to stop. Uh, and I mean that. Uh, the questions being asked were really, really good. And I really wish we can do another debate just to be able to have a discussion with these two fine gentlemen. So thanks very much for that. Yeah, in closing, uh, I just want to just go back to our two contentions that we made earlier. Recognizing, wanting to be completely fair to our, uh, our uh, the other side here. We don't have time in 10 minutes to go over the entire 15 minutes opening statements. We, we didn't get through all of the uh, everything that they said in, in their seven points in the opening statements, but they didn't go through everything that we said either. Uh, so in this closing statement, we're just going to try and wrap up with what we have and just lay back the foundation, what we said. Two contentions. The Bible does not deny that Jesus is Yahweh. Has any text been brought forward to demonstrate that the Bible denies Jesus is Yahweh? No explicit texts have been brought up, but there were a number of other passages that were dealt with that seemed to imply that Jesus is Yahweh. But I, I hope through the cross-examination you see why uh, they don't work and that our position is the better one. But really, our main contention was the second one, that the Bible teaches that Jesus is Yahweh. And I'll, I'll let Dr. Uh, I'll let Carl actually respond to the first argument, but for the second and the third arguments, the argument from explicit passages, I don't think there was anything that was brought up in that rebuttal and cross-examination uh, that we hadn't already dealt with to be able to demonstrate that these passages explicitly teach that Jesus is Yahweh. I also want to mention that uh, the other two passages, they didn't quite get that much attention in the cross-examination, and that is the passages such as 1 Corinthians 10.9, we must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. Of course, we did see Dustin mentioning that Jude 5 is a disputed passage, and I noticed uh, that uh, Carl asked that it, it was later changed, because the earliest manuscripts uh, actually go with Jesus destroyed, who brought the people out of Egypt, later destroyed those who did not believe. And so we allow what the earliest manuscripts and the most solid manuscripts to speak, they actually teach quite explicitly that Jesus is Yahweh. And I believe that through this, uh, we've demonstrated that Jesus is Yahweh. And those of us who have any doubts will hopefully have that clarified. If not, in the q and I pass the time to how to finish up the rest of this closing statement. Yeah, I would simply say, Will, Dustin, thank you so much for a, just a really helpful conversation. I've enjoyed it. I enjoyed the cross-examination. I enjoyed the opening statement and the rebuttal. I feel like I'm learning a lot through this. I'm not a debater. This is not my thing. And so this has been very helpful for me to better understand your position as well. As Samuel mentioned, I focus primarily on that the Bible does not deny that Jesus is Yahweh. And um, I was really impressed. I got to say, Dustin, I'm really impressed. You said every commentary on John points that out. I have not read every commentary on John, but you are quite the scholar, my friend. Just teasing. I thought that that was, that was a, a good point. We agree with you. We want people to read the passages in context. Look at John 5. Look at John 8. Look at John 10. Read in context. And that brings me back to that main idea. We believe that if you look at these texts from a Trinitarian perspective, that you will see nothing in these texts that denies the Trinity. And so I know that you would say that if you look at the text from a biblical Unitarian position, the same would be true. And so I want to just go back to that question once again. Which perspective gives the most consistency? 
whenever we bring those presuppositions to the text, which is most consistent with all of scripture, where we don't have to jump outside of scripture to philosophy or to historical interpretation or to, you know, other second temple texts, but looking scripture as scripture, which is most consistent. And I would point out one final passage, and that's the response whenever Caiaphas asked, you know, are you the Messiah to Jesus? He quotes from Daniel 7, and then he rips his clothes because the strict monotheists at that time saw that statement. All right, Kyle, that's, that's time right there. That's time right there. Thank you so much. So I want to thank Samuel and Kyle for their spirited engagement on the topic, Does the Bible Teach That Jesus Is Yahweh? And after closely listening to their position, their interaction with the evidence we provided, and the results of cross-examination, let me take this opportunity to summarize the results of this debate that demonstrate why our position is more persuasive than theirs. First, we thoroughly demonstrated from the Bible that Yahweh is only one person, the Father alone, illustrated by over 20,000 singular references like I, me, you, he, him, myself, yourself, himself. Now, Samuel and Kyle continued to equivocate on the definition of Yahweh. They gave lip service to the 20,000 singular references that prove that God is only one person. And they also said that the Unitarian views are an assumption. Now, 20,000 verses are an assumption. Well, goodness, I don't know what real evidence would be. So when we asked if there was a passage where Yahweh was three or triune, they could not provide one single passage. We suggested there are over 20,000 that indicate that God, Yahweh particularly, is one person. Now, second, we showed from the Bible that Jesus is the given name to the human Messiah, the Son of God. And Yahweh and Yahweh's Messiah are not the same. I tended to notice that Samuel and Kyle consistently collapsed Jesus and Yahweh. Third, we thoroughly proved from Deuteronomy 18, Psalm 2, and Psalm 110 that the promised Messiah was to be a figure who is distinguished from Yahweh. And Samuel and Kyle wanted to equivocate on the definition of Yahweh in Deuteronomy 18, saying that Yahweh sent the prophet like Moses, who also is Yahweh. That sounds like two Yahwehs, even though the Shema says that Yahweh is one. Fourth, we discussed the Jewish principle of agency. And we observed its practice in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament, namely that Yahweh sends, empowers, qualifies, and authorizes agents who represent him. And the New Testament makes clear that the human Jesus is Yahweh's supreme agent. Now, Samuel and Kyle struggled to accept that Jesus is God's supreme agent and to read the Bible in light of the context of the Jewish principles of agency. I found myself having to repeat that seemingly self-evident point. Fifth, we demonstrated from the Old Testament and the New Testament that Yahweh and Jesus are differentiated by mutually exclusive traits. Yahweh is eternal, but Jesus was brought into existence. He had a genesis. Yahweh cannot die, but Jesus died. Yahweh cannot be tempted, but Jesus was tempted. And if any of these differentiations are true, then the debate is over. Jesus is not Yahweh. And unfortunately, Samuel Kyle didn't really have a time to respond to these particular points, but I wonder if it's because they're pretty self-evident. We can see in the audience Q&A, we'll see. Sixth, we showed from the Bible that the New Testament authors regularly do not apply the Old Testament citations in a one-to-one -one manner. 
We cited three very clear passages to demonstrate that point. And Samuel and Kyle didn't actually object to the evidence that we gave, but they still attempted to argue for a one-to-one application in some places. You have to make an argument for that, but it's not a given. That's not the go-to answer that you give when it comes to interpreting New Testament citations from the Hebrew Bible. And lastly, we highlighted the historical anachronism of reading 4th and 5th century concepts back into the Old Testament and New Testament, particularly pertaining to the Trinity, Jesus' two natures, and even eternal generation. And Samuel and Kyle continued to read these points back into it, and I think that commits historical anachronism, okay? Um, when I see in Genesis twelve sixteen that Pharaoh gave to Abraham a bunch of camels, I don't think that that means that Pharaoh gave a box of smokes to Abraham. That would be to read cigarettes back into the Bible in an eisegetical manner, okay? That would be inappropriate. Will and I repeatedly demonstrated that Yahweh and Jesus are two different beings. Samuel and Kyle were, I think, unable to overturn this basic and self-evident fact. And their arguments were riddled with several problems. One, they equivocated on the definition of Yahweh. Two, they admitted that they bring their own presuppositions to the text and read it into them. Three, they committed historical anachronisms, reading Nicene and Chalcedonian theories back into the Hebrew Bible. Fourth, they built arguments on textually uncertain passages, and they suggested that the Father has a God, even though Ephesians 4, 6 says that there is only one God and Father who is over all. The audience is left with a choice, conclude that Jesus just is Yahweh, whom the Old Testament defines as the Father, or conclude that Jesus is the Son of God, Yahweh's anointed King. Thank you. When the Trinity's podcast returns, audience question and answer time. For the Unitarians, what counsel would you give to a Trinitarian that is persuaded by some of your arguments, but is concerned what the implications of giving up the inherited tradition that, quote, Jesus is Yahweh? I mean, I think as a, as a pastor, one of the things I think about is we want to read the Bible. We want to read the Bible and try to understand as best as we can. And I know our dialogue partners have agreed with us that, you know, we, we all have a frame. We all have a reference. We all have a way of approaching the text. And it's hard to get out of that. And so what I would say is just to continue the journey, to continue to evaluate these options. Dustin and I present, I think, a strong Unitarian view. And these fine gentlemen that we dialogued with tonight provided an excellent Trinitarian view. And so to continue reading on both sides of the debate, continuing to read your Bible and asking yourself the question over and over again, which one of these makes better sense of the, of the text? And if I could, as a pastor, point you to some passages, I would encourage you to read the book of Acts, especially the sermons in Acts, and ask yourself the question, is Jesus being portrayed as Yahweh, or is he being portrayed as the Messiah, the unique Son of God, who died for our sins, and all the other wonderful things that the Bible says about him? I was going to say I would give pretty much the same advice that Will just gave. I mean, my pastoral heart says, read the words, study the scriptures, 
I think that that's something that we are all for in agreement with here. As you study the scriptures, just keep looking in. I agree. Read the book of Acts. It's wonderful. Read the gospels. Read the Pauline uh, epistles. I mean, as you're reading the text, just ask yourself that question. Going back to the creator-creature distinction that I mentioned, ask yourself as you see Jesus portrayed both in his actions and the way that people respond to him as the epistles respond to him, which side is he on? Is he on the creator side or is he on the creature side? I would simply say this, that if you find a need to use context, inverted commas, uh, or in quotation marks, to twist the plain meaning of the text, there's a good chance that your position is wrong. If you have to find a need to say, well, I think that the this text is a disputed text, the, you know, textual criticism, disputed text, when the earliest manuscripts say it, the chances are you don't want to accept the plain meaning of scripture. And I think that the key thing to this is allowing scripture to speak. And context is to clarify the meaning, not to cast doubt on the plain meaning of the text. This is a question for Sam and Kyle. How do you explain that the concept of the Trinity as we know it today was not developed until 500 AD, the Athanasian Creed, uh, fifth century, five centuries after Jesus' earthly ministry? First of all, the doctrine of the Trinity. I, I don't know if we could have made it any more clear earlier uh, in the closing statements. Uh, I think, I believe uh, Dustin mentioned that we didn't give any references to show that Yahweh is more than one person. We did. We just went through Genesis chapter 18 to show that Yahweh on earth sent down fire from Yahweh in heaven. And, and if you thought that that is uh, you know, not a clear text, go to Amos 4.11, where Yahweh himself is giving a commentary on what took place in Genesis chapter 19, verse 24. Amos 4.11 says, I overthrew some of you, Yahweh speaking, as Elohim overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you did not return to me, says Yahweh. So Yahweh himself, in his own commentary of Genesis 19, demonstrates that he's more than one person. So the doctrine of the Trinity wasn't invented in Nicaea. This is a common misunderstanding. The doctrine of the Trinity was taught in the first three verses of the Bible and is consistently applied all throughout the scriptures till we end in the book of Revelation with the Spirit mentioned, the Father mentioned, and finally Jesus mentioned. I would add to what Sam said that the Trinity was in the scriptures, that the Trinity is taught in the scriptures, that the Trinity is held by the earliest church. I think that both our friends and us, we would agree, watch the Dell Tuggy chris Date debate. They get into this a lot about what the early centuries of the church believed about the Trinity. And I think you'll see some pretty clear references there that long before the Athanasian Creed, these things were discussed. So I've got this uh, this really good book that I think would be good for people to look into. Uh, it's called The Search for the Christian Doctrine of God by R.P.C. Hansen. Uh, and I want to read a quote from there. He says, um, in the midst of his 900 pages, quote, With the exception of Athanasius, virtually every theologian, East and West, accepted some form of subordinationism, at least up to the year 355. Subordinationism might indeed, until the denouement of the controversy, have been described as accepted orthodoxy. So this historian says that subordination was the accepted orthodoxy, not co-equality between three persons. And I'll also point out that when we asked the question earlier, uh, is there a passage that says that God is three or triune? There aren't any. Well, let, let me add to that too, Dustin. Clement of Rome, 1 Clement 20, verse 11, defines the creator and master of the universe to be the father. And later in the same verse, he talks about, we can take refuge in his compassionate mercies through our Lord Jesus Christ. So he distinguishes between the creator and master, 
of all things, and then to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's very common in Justin, Tertullian, Origen, many of the early church fathers. If you read their early church fathers, they define the ultimate God, the almighty God to be the father. And they ultimately see Jesus, the Logos, as a second God. They're not Trinitarian. They don't incorporate the Holy Spirit until much later. Take that for what it is. Go read the early church fathers if you want to check my work on it. I, I would hope that you do. And here's another question. Should Protestants re-examine the Trinity, considering the claims of Roman Catholic scholars that the Trinity is a product of the authority of the church via progressive revelation? Yes, you should reconsider oh. Roman Catholic doctrine. That would be, <laughs> I mean, yeah, we're not, none of us are Catholic. I don't know how we are supposed to defend their position. Uh, we would just say, go to scripture, just study scripture. Sam, would you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I mean, you, you, you took that right out of my mouth. I was just about to say there's a group of people today that talk about going past church tradition and going back to scripture. They coined the term sola scriptura. They're called Protestants. We are Protestants. Uh, and, and so, uh, but what I want to add to this uh, is that the idea of the Trinity coming and evolving later in church history is just wrong. Uh, again, I'm not, I'm not sure if I misunderstood. I want to be fair here. I'm not sure I misunderstood Will earlier saying that Tertullian didn't teach the Trinity. Tertullian is one of those who coined the term Trinitas. So again, we don't believe in the Trinity because Tertullian said so. If you go back to the earliest Christian homilies, one of the earliest Christian sermons that we have is Peripasca by Melito of Sardis during the time of Polycarp, uh, the disciple of John. The ending of the sermon of Peripasca is that of the son, he is born by the father and he bears the father. It expresses the co-equality there. So historically, this argument that the Trinity is a later development is fallacious. And again, biblically, if it starts with Genesis 1, 1 to 3, uh, that's the first thing that God reveals. In fact, I would say that all of the Gospels start with the deity of Christ, all of them, no exception. What I'll respond to the point on Tertullian. Yeah, Tertullian real quick. I'll read a Tertullian quote. This is on the veiling of virgins, chapter one. It says, the church though dispersed through our whole world, even to the ends of the earth, has received from the apostles and their disciples this faith. She believes in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are in them, and in one Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who became incarnate for our salvation, and in the Holy Spirit, who proclaimed through the prophets the dispensations of God. And in my mind, and again, uh, we can debate church fathers too at some point, maybe that'd be fun for you guys, we could do this more formally. But what I would say is that Tertullian just simply in that chapter defines the Father to be the Almighty God, the one God. Yeah, and I would follow up by saying that even though Tertullian used the word Trinitas, he doesn't mean by that what the Chalcedonian creeds are saying. When you read Tertullian carefully, that becomes absolutely clear. So we can't just look at the word, we have to see how that word is being defined. Is there any reason to believe that the Christophanies or Theophanies even existed as a concept in the first century? We have plenty of attestation that the concept of Shalai, am I pronouncing that right? Shalia, Shalia agency, I agency did. Uh, I think this is a question for Sam and Kyle. Yeah, let me quickly respond to that because I, I've been wanting to do that so badly. Uh, again, my, my bad here. Dustin brought it up a couple of times. I should have addressed it. Uh, the concept of Shalia is a concept of agency. Yeah, that's right. But there's limitations to that. So, for example, in the concept of Shalia, a person is allowed to represent another person. But the possession of the person who sends out the Shalia does not automatically become the possession of the Shalia himself. Uh, so Jesus treats the world as if it belongs to him. How is that? I mean, in the parable of the weeds and tares, Jesus, who is the sower, describes the world, the field, as his field. 
uh, he owns the whole world. Whereas the Psalm says, the earth that is the Lord and all that is within. So the point is this, that Jesus acts as if what belongs to God is what belongs to him. Uh, in fact, the people of God are referred to as children of Yahweh. Jesus, as I pointed out in the parable, the prodigal son treats the Jews as his children. So uh, again, a Shalia cannot own the property of the person who sends him out. Sorry, Carl, go ahead. I would agree with everything you said. And I would just point back to the topic of this debate is, does the Bible teach that Jesus is Yahweh? So this is outside of the topic of this debate, but yeah, read Second Temple Jewish literature. Thousands and thousands of pages have been written. You do see an interpretation of angelomorphology, of Christophanies, of Theophanies, even before the time of the first century. But that's a lot of reading. Have fun. My response to that, I think, uh, I mean, it doesn't have to be an either or. It could be a both and. I do think that uh, that God sends out angels and a, a malak or an angelos uh, by definition is a messenger who represents the sender. And I think we could qualify this thing that the, uh, the agent does not automatically have all the possessions of the sender. Uh, but if the sender qualifies and gives those privileges and prerogatives to the agent, then the agent can rightfully possess them. And we could see when Jesus answers the question in John chapter 5, the disputed question that was raised earlier, he indicates uh, that the Father has given all judgment to the Son because he's the Son of Man. Notice, because he's a human being, not because he's a second member of the Trinity. And the Father shares the ability to give life. Jesus says that he is the Son of Man who has authority on earth to forgive sins. Notice he's the qualified human being that God has authorized to have this authority to forgive sins, to share in God's prerogatives. And, but it's not only just on earth. We know at the end of Matthew, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth, not just on earth. So now we got heaven and earth, has been given to me. So Jesus uh, is the agent who is authorized and qualified and empowered by the sender so that he can do things that typically only God can do. But he does so not as Yahweh, but as Yahweh's authorized agent. When the Trinity's podcast returns, more audience Q&A, as moderated by the host, Marlon Wilson. is a speaker in Zechariah 2, 10 to 11 claims to be Yahweh and dwell in our midst in verse 10 and 11. Yet this Yahweh is sent by another that is Yahweh. This is Zechariah 2, 10 to 11. That's correct. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, before behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares Yahweh. And many nations shall join themselves to Yahweh in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst and you shall know that Yahweh of hosts has sent me to you. Um, I think in the context, if I'm reading this in verse three, that there, uh, chapter two, verse three, there's an angel. And again, I've already made the argument that an angel by definition is a messenger who represents God. This is not two Yahwehs. Okay. And I think Samuel and Kyle would, would agree that there are not two Yahwehs. 
or at least two distinguished beings who are Yahweh. So I think this is probably uh, Yahweh speaking through the messenger. And it's very often that messengers, uh, particularly in the prophets, uh, will say, thus saith the Lord, even though they themselves are not Yahweh himself. Uh, they are the agents, uh, the prophets, the authorized spokespersons who speak on Yahweh's behalf. But there's no reference there to Jesus either. So but I think it's, it's probably best explained by the reference to the angel being there and the fact that this is written in a prophet who, by his own identity, is someone who is uh, speaking the words of God uh, as a, an agent. Yeah, so I just want to quickly point out here. Now, by the way, let's be just to clarify this. Both Khan and I love Will and Dustin, but this is exactly what we meant earlier when we say that we are going to be allowed to take text like this and let the text speak. Both Khan and I are going to be able to look at this text and say, it means what it says. Yahweh sends Yahweh. And I, no, I want to say I fully agree with uh, Dustin that no, we don't believe there are two Yahwehs, but we believe that more than one person is referred to as Yahweh. That's been our argument the entire day. Uh, and I think this text just further illustrates that when we come to text like this, we don't have to try and explain it away or try to get to another context outside of this text, bring it in to try and cast doubt on the plain meaning. We just let it say what it says. Uh, and that's the heart of Trinitarian theology. No one invented these things. We are just allowing scripture to say what it plainly states. Yeah, I mean, I would agree. I, I wouldn't disagree with what Dustin says, that the Lord can speak through one of his representatives. But we do have here a couple of times it is specified that it is Yahweh Sabaoth that is speaking here. Um, it says that, for instance, in verse 8, whenever it begins the section. And so I would just say that this is Yahweh's word, whether it's through a representative or not. This is Yahweh's word, and Yahweh is the one that speaks of the sending being sent. And so that would be the interpersonal relationship within the one God. How did you read Mark chapter 10, uh, verses 17 to 18? And why would you consider it pro or against denying Jesus is God? The key thing in the story is this. The argument here, the assumption here would be, uh, and I, by the way, I would take this text as something that is teaching the deity of Christ. In this text, this rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' response is this, why do you call me good? Now, among those who deny the deity of Christ, typically what is done uh, is to say that since Jesus is saying, why do you call me good? There's no one good but God. Therefore, Jesus is not God. Uh, we think this is wrong for a couple of reasons. Number one, Jesus clearly teaches that he is good in two ways. Number one, he calls himself the good shepherd in John chapter 10. And number two, he denies that, in fact, he challenges his opponents, which one of you can prove that I'm guilty of sin? We all believe that Jesus is sinless. So yes, Jesus is calling himself good, which means that he is calling himself God. Number two, eternal life in this situation. The shocking thing about this is that this young man has just been told there's no one good but God. And he says, me too. Uh, I'm good too. And Jesus says, no, you, you, if you are good, sell everything that you have. You, you, you said you keep the law. Do you love your neighbor as yourself? Sell everything you have and follow me. That's exactly what Yahweh says in the Old Testament. Following Yahweh is how you get eternal life. In the New Testament, following Jesus is how you get eternal life. Yeah, I would respond to this not by jumping away from Mark and into the Gospel of John, but by sticking to Mark itself. And I think, again, the self-evident reading is that Jesus is not wanting to claim to be good in the ultimate sense. I think it's kind of a case of special pleading to say, why do you call me good? Well, actually, you're true. No one is good except God alone. But what I really mean is myself. And actually, if you read the Greek, the translation God alone is not as, as accurate as it could be. It says, emiis uh, o theos. No one is good except for one person, the God. 
So there, Jesus demonstrates that not only is he a monotheist, he's a unitary monotheist. He defines God as one person, which, of course, would not include himself. And we know from the Gospel of Mark that Jesus defines God in terms of, of the Shema in Mark chapter 12, 29 and following, to where Yahweh is only one person described as a him. And that is, uh, of course, something that Jesus agrees with and says it's the greatest commandment. So I think the most natural reading of that is that Jesus does not want this title, and he wants to reserve that for one person, namely the God, who is clearly someone distinguished from him in the Gospel of Mark. Would you expect a Bible reader not given a lens of informed presupposition regarding the Trinity to arrive at the understanding of the hypostatic union? If not, how is this sola scriptura? <laughs> the hypostatic union. Wonderful. Yeah, so these are words that we use later on to describe what is already in the text. And so we would say that what we see in the text is that Jesus is fully human. We would also say that Jesus is fully God because in the who is Jesus question, we would say he falls on the side of the creator and not on the side of the creature. So, no, you might not come up with that interesting term, hypostatic union. You might come up with a different way to describe it, but we would say that, yes, just from reading scripture, you can come to the conclusion that Jesus is fully God and fully man. I know the question was for me, but Samuel, do you want to add anything to that? Yes, the terminologies. I mean, look at the word unitarian. The word unitarian is not in the Bible, but it's uh, we, we are not going to say that just because it's not there that automatically makes it wrong or that's, that's somehow appealing to tradition. No, what unitarians try to do is to try to make a case and they use this label to make a case as to what the scripture says. That's what Trinitarians are doing as well. And it is not a denial of sola scriptura to recognize the theological systems within scripture itself and to label it as such. I don't think it's very fair to suggest that we are assuming Unitarianism. Uh, our very first point was to point out uh, what I think is one of the most st statistically voluminous points of the Hebrew Bible, which is that Yahweh is defined with 20,000 singular references, uh, nouns, verbs, adjectives, pronouns. That's not reading anything into it. That is the most voluminous fact of the Hebrew Bible that could be pointed out. So I think that is a very good place to start. When you have God saying thousands and thousands of times, I, me, he, him, that seems to indicate one single person. So I don't have to read in all of these post-biblical concepts to make sense of something that seems to be, uh, to me, uh, self-evident and obvious. Will? The idea that Jesus had a beginning, you know, we've been talking about the creation-creator divide a little bit, but the idea that Jesus had a beginning is very clear in Matthew 1. But even if you want to take like a high Christological section like Colossians 1.15, we've been talking about texts where we can just read the plain meaning of scripture. Colossians 1.15 says, he referring to Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. It puts him clearly on the creation side of the creator-creation divide. You can go back and forth on Colossians 1. You know, Obviously, it's a high Christological passage, but I'm pointing out that even when you don't cherry pick your passages, you can find language that right there in the text, we can deal with that and see that, uh, again, the idea of a hypostatic union seems foreign to many of our ears, especially on the Unitarian side. How can you say that you you are letting the text speak for itself, but bring concepts like two natures to the text to explain away clear passages that say Jesus died or Jesus was not omniscient? Since I brought up the two natures and the communicatio idiomatum uh, and hypostatic union, of course, Carl, you were guilty of that. That somehow must mean that we are denying sola scriptura, right? Uh, no, uh, it doesn't. 
what we're simply doing is allowing scripture to speak, but allowing scripture to speak and I categorizing them, labeling those categories. Uh, and so does the Bible teach that Jesus has two natures? I did an entire debate on this. Uh, and I would invite people to go and watch the debate with Carlos Xavier, where I discussed the two natures from scripture. In the cross-examination of that debate, I brought up Colossians 2.9. By the way, when Will mentioned just now that literal reading of Colossians 1.15, said Jesus is the firstborn of creation, that Jesus is created. If you read Leo's tome, Leo actually says Christ is both created and uncreated, right? I mean, so that's not saying we believe that because Leo says that. What we are simply saying is the two natures, the human nature of Christ is a created nature. No one denies that. The divine nature of Christ is uncreated. And now we come to Colossians 2.9, which is at the heart of the two natures debate. In him, the person, the whole fullness of deity, divine nature, dwells in bodily form, human nature. You've got a text in Colossians, the same text that uh, my, my dear friend will appeal to, to talk about Jesus being creation. If you read on further down, it goes on to teach the two natures. That's clearly what it is. You may not want to call it two natures, but that's what it's actually saying. You can call it another name if you want to, but uh, the concept is clearly there. I mean, obviously we would agree with that. We think the text is quite clear that Jesus died and there was never any sort of like, well, he didn't really die. He only died in one particular nature, but he didn't die in this other nature. And like we've tried to point out, Mark 13, 32, has Jesus saying the son doesn't know, but only the father, okay? Only the father has this omniscient understanding. So Jesus is clearly not omniscient. Since Colossians 2.9 was brought up, I just want to make sure we have a chance to respond to that. Colossians 2.9 is uh, building on something that was already mentioned earlier in Colossians 1.15 through 20, which has no less than nine references to Paul's wisdom Christology. I do think that Colossians was written by Paul. I know that's kind of disputed, but wisdom Christology is the Christology. I wish we had more time to talk about in this, this debate, uh, where the functions of God's personified wisdom from the Hebrew Bible and from Second Temple Judaism are now applied to Jesus. And so there's nine of them in the Colossian hymn. And one of those, of course, involves the reference of uh, wisdom being embodied in Jesus. So I think that's what Paul would have intended by that. And the multiple references to Jesus associated with wisdom throughout the Colossian letter, I think would have alerted the readers to that plainly obvious point. Again, we've been talking about the clear reading of scripture. And, and when we come to texts like Mark 13 and texts that say that Jesus died, we can simply say that we agree that Jesus died. And I think, again, our, our friends on the other side have to clarify what they mean when they say Jesus died. They have to say, well, it was this way or that way. And so, again, if you just read the text, it says Jesus died uh, five or six different ways. Samuel said the father has a God is, is a God based on Hebrews chapter one, verses verse eight. But he doesn't say my God, as Jesus says to the father. So who does the father call my God and where? Again, I didn't mention Hebrews 8. Will immediately knew where I was going at and Will cited it. And I agree. Yeah, that's what it is. Uh, yes, I believe that in Hebrews 1.8, the father uses the term God in reference to Jesus. Now, you may disagree with that interpretation, but that's the author of Hebrews applying that to the son. Why do I say that? Because that's what the author of Hebrews says of the son. He, the father says, your throne of God is forever. This comes two verses after the father commands that all angels of God worship him. Right. So the concept that I'm getting at is this. That's a passage teaching the deity of Christ. And again, there's nothing wrong between God calling the, another person of the blessed Trinity, God, to suggest that God cannot call another person God is to assume Unitarianism instead of proving it. And we don't assume that. We, are, we start from Genesis 
where the scripture already begins with that. We start from the passages in Deuteronomy, which uses the word echad, and then we work on that and build on that to realize that in Genesis, we see there's more than one person in Yahweh. We see the same thing in Amos 4.11. We see the same thing in Isaiah. And we allow that to build up. And then we conclude with that to say that when we come to these passages, it's in clearly teaching this in Hebrews 1, we just allow scripture to say what it is. So it's not wrong to say God calls Jesus God. He doesn't have to use my God to do that. That's just another case. Carl, do you want to add to that? Yeah, I would disagree with what Samuel has said in that we allow passages that tend themselves towards a unity of persons to be interpreted as a unity of persons. We don't try to force anything on those on those passages. And for those which show clearly a unity of being, we don't try to force any persons into that. We just say that that's the unity of the one God speaking. And then in other passages where there seems to be a diversity of persons, we allow that to be the case. We're just trying to read scripture consistently throughout. That's our goal. Yeah, I'd like to jump in and actually find an area of agreement between Kyle and myself, because uh, in his opening statement, uh, I think he rightly said that persons other than God, even human beings, can also be called God. And again, we don't deny the fact that Jesus is called God on a couple of occasions. And I think Hebrews 1.8 is one of those places where Jesus unambiguously is called God, but he's doing so by referencing Psalm 45, verse 6 to where we have a Davidic king, very likely Solomon, but someone that's getting married. That king is called God, it's called Elohim, and he has a God above him. Uh, so clearly God can share his name, uh, or share at least the, the title Elohim, the God, with a qualified human king, that much is clear. And it's interesting that when they want to call Jesus God, it's that sort of passage that they cite. They cite a passage of a human king being called God who has a God above him. Oh, that's the sort of way that we want to understand who Jesus is. So we don't deny the fact that Jesus is called God, but if you look up Elohim in the lexicons and Halot or BDB, it would be quite clear that human beings are called Elohim, sometimes El, in ways that the text actually approves of. But since we're on the subject of definitions, if you were to look up Yahweh in any of those, you won't find that uh, Halot or BDB defines Yahweh as the triune God. And when you look up Theos uh, in BDAG, third or fourth edition, uh, you won't find that Theos refers to the triune God either. So uh, the, a lot of these things deal with definitions that are very precise, and sometimes we have to argue over them. But I do think that we need to take those definitions very, very seriously. The author of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, whoever this person was, uh, their argument here is that Jesus is better than the angels, that he's better than Moses. And then he talks about how the covenant is better than Moses's covenant. And it seems to me like if he wanted to suggest that Jesus is Yahweh, he just would have said something along the lines of Jesus is, is God in the highest sense of the word, or he would have explicated the Trinity in some way instead of comparing him to angels into a human like Moses. I just want to go back to Amos 4.11 and just say that Hebrews is not the only place where the Father refers to Jesus as God. I cited in the debate Amos 4.11, where Yahweh speaking says here, I overthrew some of you as when Elohim overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a brand plucked out from the burning, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. So all I'm saying is to clarify, both in the Old and New Testament, whatever the context is, Yahweh does refer to Jesus. And again, I'm going to argue that, of course, this is a separate debate, whether this is referring, this is clearly, I think, referencing Genesis 19, 24. But again, Yahweh is referring to Jesus as God. Yeah, I just think that uh, if you were on a desert island and you've never read the Bible and the Bible just kind of washed up the shore and you're reading through the Hebrew Bible, you would not get the impression by reading Amos 
or Genesis 18 and 19, that this is referring to Jesus. You wouldn't have a concept of Jesus. That name doesn't even appear until we get into the New Testament. And since this debate is on whether the Bible teaches that Jesus is Yahweh, uh, I don't think people would have made that connection there. I think people are going to have to really read into it there. And and there there seems to be, again, this difficulty of, of recognizing that Yahweh can work through agents, particularly angels, which we do see in Genesis 18 and 19 quite explicitly. In angels, messengers in the principle of agency uh, represent the sender fully. Again, I want to thank you all for this cordial debate and thank for your you. time. Uh, in working with us and all this. And uh, and I also agree. I wish we had two more hours and I wish I had some more pizza to give to, to Kyle. So, so, uh, so. Yeah, I would say thank you guys. Thank all of you guys. You guys have uh, been amazing. And this is one of the easier debates to moderate when guys are on. They respect each other, you know, and they are not getting at each other's throats. I mean, Trinitarians and Unitarians, some of, the, some of you guys, man, some of y'all crazy. You know, I'm just going to say it like that. Some of y'all crazy. You know, but nonetheless, you guys did great. And I do appreciate the decorum, the politeness, just the, the rapport between you guys, man. I really do appreciate it. And, uh, you know, I look forward to having you guys on again, perhaps not in a 202 tandem like this, perhaps another 101 between someone and you or someone else. But nonetheless, I think you guys behave very well. And I always agree that as the, the debate progresses of how, how does these individuals behave, you know, when they're on, you know, and that helps me gauge if I do want to invite them back on. But so you guys definitely all get an A plus in my great book. So uh, you guys continue to do your thing. And uh, before I let you guys go, uh, why don't you once again, shout out, let everybody know out there in the audience where they can come check you out. You can check out my ministry, Explain International at uh, YouTube. We have uh, our channel, YouTube channel, Explain International. And you can also look up our website, www.explaininternational.com. Yeah, I hope I got that right. Uh, and also you can check out our apologetics program. We call it the Great Commission Apologetics Program with courses offered with Malaysia Baptist Theological Seminary at certificate, diploma, and master's level. Uh, you can just visit uh, the Malaysian Baptist Theological Seminary website slash Great Commission Apologetics for that. I would agree with what Samuel has just said. Check out Malaysia Baptist Theological Seminary, particularly if you're in Malaysia. And also if you're in the Klang Valley, Gospel City Church is a church where I serve as an elder. We would love to have you visit sometime. You can go to gospelcitychurch.my or just Google Gospel City Church Kuala Lumpur and it'll come up. I'm the head pastor of Compass Christian Church in Louisville, Kentucky. And our website is compasslu.org. And then you can find us on YouTube. We have a YouTube channel as well. Compass Christian Church, and it's at Compass Lou on YouTube. And the best way to reach me is that I have a weekly podcast called the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. If you type in Biblical Unitarian, it'll come up. It's been a, a weekly podcast for like 270 episodes, 270 weeks in a row. Uh, so if you are interested in more uh, heretical teachings and disruptions of scripture, uh, that's a good place for you to go. And uh, we also want to thank the UCA, the Unitarian Christian Alliance, for promoting this debate. And uh, again, I want to thank our distinguished dialogue partners. They are the very definition of Christian gentlemen, and uh, they set the standard for what I think loving dialogue should be. So props to you for doing that, and uh, it has not gone unnoticed. Thanks, Dustin. Thank you so much, Will. And I have to just say the same thing to you guys. You guys have been really, really amazing, uh, and I really look forward to interacting with you guys uh, in the future.
Indeed, both sides acted like Christians. What's not to like? That Dr. Kyle Essery, he sounds like a guy I'd enjoy having a pizza with sometime. But of course, the more important question is, which side put forward the stronger case? What do you think? Let us know by leaving a comment on the post for this episode at trinities.org or go to the Trinities Podcast Facebook group and let us know there. What did you learn from this debate? Did either side make crucial errors? Which new arguments did you encounter that you found convincing for either side? A debate is an opportunity for learning. It should not be an ego contest. And I don't think this one was. So thanks again to our four excellent debaters and for the host, Marlon Wilson. You can check out his YouTube channel, The Gospel Truth. I put a link for that on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org, as well as links relating to all four debaters. And I've also got some links for episodes of other podcasts where our debaters reflect on the debate. So if you want to hear their post-debate thoughts and reflections, look for those links. This week's thinking music has been the track Strength of Knowing by Jesse Spillane. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org where you can listen to or download that entire track. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.